Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. It's 2021, and this is the first podcast of 2021. We took a little break for uh, the holidays, and this is Virginia Law for Law Enforcement Officers. This is a podcast for officers who want to learn about the law, about constitutional law, case law, statutory law in Virginia. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer to better strengthen and serve your communities? Today's episode, we're going to talk about searches of hotels. Uh, I got a great question uh, sent to me and a suggestion for an episode by a listener. And so we're going to talk about that and follow that today. I don't, we're not going to um, just gloss over what happened this week at the U.S. Capitol, but I want to talk about at the end of the episode. I don't know when you're listening to this. You might be listening to this, you know, right here uh, in 2021. You might be listening to it, um, who knows, in uh, in 2022 or 2023. Um, so we'll talk about it at the end of the podcast. But I do I do want to take a minute and um, and talk about what happened this week at the Capitol. But before we do, I do want to talk about today's topic. Um, Daniel sent in a really great question about searching hotel rooms and hotels, and it's a question that comes up for law enforcement all the time. Uh, you know, obviously, if you have a search warrant, you can search a hotel, but when else can you go into a hotel room? When is it uh, proper to go in if you have a guest and the hotel asks you to, or you have probable cause that there's a crime going on, or there's some violent action going on? Um, you know, a hotel is a lot like a house, so it's a lot like a home in some ways, but it's, in other ways, it's not like a home. It's not like a hotel. I mean, it's not like a home. It doesn't have that sort of protections. It's, it's like, it's, you know, it's something different. So uh, I want to talk about that today in the podcast and sort of cover a couple of different topics. Number one, uh, when does a person cease to be a guest? In other words, when does a person lose their rights to privacy in a hotel room? And the expectation of privacy in a hotel room maybe extends to a guest, but who else does it extend to and how far does it extend? And then even if you do have somebody who's a guest who has an expectation of privacy in a hotel room, when can you nevertheless enter that hotel room if there's an exigent circumstance? And then lastly, I want to say a couple things about hotel records. The, the question that uh, Daniel sent in was about a situation where the hotel had asked him and his fellow officers to address a situation where a hotel they were trying to eject a hotel guest. Um, this person uh, was aggressive, he was violent, he was being asked to leave, and he wasn't leaving. And so they went in without a warrant, but he was just sort of asking, making sure he was he'd done correctly. You know, again, a hotel room, in a lot of ways, under the Constitution, when a person has it rented out for, under their name, uh, that's their home for that period of time. Whether it's for a night or for a couple of nights or whatever, it gets the same protections that, a, that, that the Fourth Amendment gives to your home. And here they were basically going to this person's home and ejecting them. Was that okay? And that's the question that's addressed in McCary versus Commonwealth, where officers are called to a hotel because the defendant was destroying property. He was smashing things. He claimed he had knives in his possession. Um, he was he was basically asking the officers to kill him. He said, I've got knives, you know, come at me and, and just kill me, kill me. You know, the police, the hotel clerk at that point said, not only may you enter, but we're, we really are asking you to enter. We, we're ejecting this person. We're done with this person. They enter, they find drugs. And he objects later on, and he says that that entry was unlawful. But the court in this case found that by significantly damaging the room, the defendant violated his terms of agreement with the hotel and relinquished his right to privacy. So the hotel owners were entitled to enter and assess and repair that damage so they could relet that room as soon as possible. And because they had the right to enter, they were they had the authority to turn that 
uh, right over to the police. It was, it was essentially their property, and so now the police also could enter. And remember that this right exists, that it's a home in the hands of the person who's rented out the room, not just some random stranger necessarily. Um, the right is something that is unique to the hotel guests, although overnight guests in the hotel room who aren't signatories can still have that right, just like an overnight guest at a house um, can still have a right to privacy in that house. So Young versus Commonwealth addresses a situation where there's a guy who um, uh, beats someone and shoots them. Uh, he, the police get a warrant for him, and they arrest him on that warrant. They arrest him outside of a hotel, and um, when they arrest him, they find evidence that he has, is connected to a hotel room inside that hotel. So they go inside the hotel, they go find the room, they go inside the room, they enter it without a warrant, and they find the gun that he used, that the defendant had used to shoot this person in a trash can in the hotel room. And the defendant moves to suppress. Um, he says, he claims that he was a guest. Now, he wasn't the signatory. He wasn't the person who rented the room. His girlfriend was. But he says, well, I was a guest of my girlfriend. And my intention was to spend the night at the hotel, although the police arrested me before I was able to do so. So the court looks at this and they say, well, you know, we agree that if he had been his girlfriend's overnight guest in the hotel room, that he would have that same right that his girlfriend's guest would have if it was the girlfriend's house, right? Which is you know, that, that they have an expectation of privacy. The police can't just enter and uh, search the uh, the boyfriend's stuff if he's in the girlfriend's house, right? Uh, and the hotel room is treated the same way. They have the same expectation of privacy that the homeowner does. But the preliminary question here is, what was the evidence that, in fact, he was an overnight guest of his girlfriend? He hadn't put on any evidence at the trial. He, there wasn't any evidence to put on at the hearing that he had, for example, personal property in the room other than his gun. Um, he didn't you know, have his toothbrush there. He didn't have his clothes there. He didn't have an overnight bag or anything like that. Um, and he didn't have a key to the room. So without any of those things, what's the evidence that he is, in fact, an overnight guest in that room? The court just found that there was none. But on the other hand, if you do have somebody who is staying with the person who's rented the room, who's got their toothbrush and got their overnight bag, who's got a, key, a copy of the hotel room key, they might be an overnight guest in that room, even if they haven't rented out the room, and they would have the same rights that, that, a, that a homeowner would have in that room. And you really would need to be careful and protect their Fourth Amendment rights. So, um, you know, that only extends, though, to the room itself. And so Sanders versus Commonwealth addresses a situation where police are have a police drug-sniffing dog and they're walking down the hallway, the common areas in the hotel, and the drug-sniffing dog uh, detects the odor of marijuana wafting from a particular room. Police use that to get a search warrant, and Mr. Sanders objects and says, hey, I had a right to privacy. Remember, I'm a homeowner. And, you know, Florida versus Jardines, you can't walk a dog up to my front door of my house and smell the odor of marijuana. But the court here says, no, this is a hallway of a hotel, and you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a hotel hallway, uh, and therefore you have no right to object to that search. It's not like the curtilage of your home. So that kind of gives you an introduction to the idea of privacy and so on. Um, I find that a lot of officers, when they're going to hotels and responding to hotels, uh, at least, you know, we're in a world right now where marijuana is decriminalized, it's not illegal. But in the days before when we had marijuana odors, um, or you can imagine also responding to maybe a live methamphetamine cook, um, or you show up and somebody's distributing cocaine and you can see evidence of cocaine and so on in a room, um, you have potentially an exigent circumstance where you may need to enter and secure the hotel room 
before going and getting a warrant. And Evans versus Commonwealth, which is a 2015 case from the Virginia Supreme Court, is sort of our iconic example of how exigent circumstances applies to odors to probable cause that you have uh, a drug that you have drugs inside of a residence. What happens in Evans is officers respond to an apartment. Um, they're there. I can't remember what the reason was for them being there, but ultimately they smell the strong odor of marijuana coming from the apartment. They knock on the door repeatedly, and each time, it's three times that the defendant's mother answers the door. The first time she answers the door, she just slams the door in the police's face. But they, again, knock on the door again, and they say, look, we're smelling marijuana. Uh, can you talk to us about what's going on in here? And she spontaneously, actually, excuse me, they don't, they don't mention the fact that they have the marijuana odor. They're knocking on the door and they say, hey, can we just talk to you? <clears throat> we need to talk to you. They don't reveal that they smell marijuana. And that's important, the fact that they don't reveal they're smelling marijuana, because the defendant's mother says spontaneously, ain't nobody smoking weed in here, and slams the door again. Now, a third time, the officers knock on the door again. They're saying, hey, police, we need to talk to you. We need to talk to you. And like five minutes goes by, and she doesn't answer the door. But they can hear movement inside the apartment. And when she finally opens the door, she quickly tries to, tries to close it again. And again, another strong odor of marijuana wafts through the doorway. The officers enter and, uh, and they see the drugs. They, they, they ultimately you know, um, get, a, get a warrant and search it and prosecute the owner of the drugs. Um, they, so, San, so in that particular case, um, Sanders objects and says that the entry by the police was unlawful. But the court here says there's two facts that establish exigent circumstances. The first is there's a cloud of heavy and extremely strong marijuana odors, which blows through like a gust of wind, right? So we're not just talking about a faint odor. We're talking about a very strong, very strong probable cause, very open and obvious probable cause that there is drugs inside of this property. And number two, the fact that Evans's mother... Uh, is standing there at the doorway and knows that the officers know that there's marijuana inside, right? And that's important. The fact that she knows that the officers know there's marijuana inside gives her a potent incentive to destroy, discard, or hide the illegal drug as soon as she closes the door. And the court finds that by themselves, those facts establish exigent circumstances. And so in that way, the court is echoing what the federal court said in a case called United States versus Grisette, which is an old case from 1991 from the Fourth Circuit. And that was a hotel case. That was a case where officers show up to a motel room door, they knock, they identify themselves as police. Again, they can smell the odor of marijuana wafting through the doorway. Um, and so the officers enter and uh, they discover uh, marijuana inside. In the, in the federal case, the court had said because the police had identified themselves the occupants of the room, an officer could reasonably conclude that the occupants of the room would attempt to dispose of the evidence before the police could return with a warrant. Uh, and, and they emphasized here that police officers need not produce concrete proof that the occupants of the room were on the verge of destroying evidence. Rather, the proper inquiry focuses on what an objective officer could reasonably believe. So here again, I mean, we're, you know, marijuana, we're not going to be entering on an exigent circumstance for marijuana any longer because it's decriminalized. It's not a crime in Virginia anymore. So, and we talked about this before, we talked about the marijuana um, uh, decriminalization in another podcast, but, you know, it's it's not an exigency anymore. 
if it's not a crime. So if you're just looking at somebody who's just possessing marijuana, then no, you, you ought not be entering uh, and, and securing for any reason because it's not an exigency. But on the other hand, if you're talking about a, a methamphetamine cook, a methamphetamine operation, uh, you know, you walk in and you see evidence of somebody who is distributing cocaine, and, and the evidence is so obvious that they must also realize that you know that there's cocaine distribution or you know there's a methamphetamine cook going on. And so uh, they go to exclude you, they go to slam the door. That under uh, Sanders and under Grisette indicates that, you know, there's enough of a danger that they're going to destroy evidence that you can enter and secure. But remember here that the entry is simply to eliminate the exigency. So in other words, to enter, to secure the premises, and then still go get the search warrant. Um, because again, once you've entered and secured the property, then at that point, you know, there's no more exigency anymore, and you still have to go get the search warrant. <clears throat> I've often told people that um, the best practice in that situation then, if you're getting the search warrant, is don't include the whatever it is that you see inside the hotel room after you uh, enter with that exigency, because if you do, then it becomes an issue for the court did your entry into that hotel room give you evidence that you wouldn't have otherwise had when you applied for the search warrant? On the other hand, if you just write the search warrant based on what you saw from outside the door, then what the courts have found is that your exigent entry and your securing the property really doesn't play a role in ultimately whether the search warrant is valid or not because the search warrant was only based on what you saw in plain view from a lawful position where you were lawfully, uh, um, where you were standing lawfully. And the fact that you entered really doesn't matter because you didn't use that to get your search warrant, right? There's no right on the part of the occupants of the hotel room to destroy evidence, right? So we're just dealing with a question of you just secured it, held the status quo, and then got your search warrant based on what you saw at the, at the gate. So unless you really need to, I wouldn't include the information that you gathered after you entered with that exigency. Just use what you saw in plain view from a lawful position uh, to get your search warrant. Obviously, though, you know, there's also a use of force issue here. And you do always want to be careful about entering a hotel room without a warrant because it's a warrantless entry. It's presumed unreasonable. And if you do get into a fight or if you do end up hurting somebody or <clears throat> somebody, you know, gets injured in that process, they're going to have a right of action against you and your action is presumed to be unreasonable. So the exigency really needs to be clear uh, under the facts of the case to justify your entry and then subsequent your use of force, right? All the more reason why you don't want to make un uh, exigent entries anymore for marijuana you know, but if it's a cocaine distribution operation or something like that, or you've got, you know, a methamphetamine cook, uh, then I think you're on much stronger ground. Um, remember, there's an interesting case called Fanes versus Commonwealth, and this is a case from 2005 <clears throat> that's sort of controversial. It's sort of an interesting question right now. What happens in Fanes, you know, they, they know... So the narcotics unit in this case is aware, and there's Cherry versus Commonwealth that says that if you have an exigent circumstance that you can enter if you believe that evidence is being destroyed. So in this case, a narcotics unit sort of says, hey, well, let's go to this you know known drug house where we know people were buying and selling drugs. 
we'll go to the door, we'll knock on the door, and we'll just announce that we're the police and see what happens. And so they go to the door, they knock on the door, they say, hey, police, you know, if you've got a minute, we'd like to talk to you. And of course, immediately, you can hear the sounds of evidence being destroyed inside. And they're like, hey, Bob, it's a good thing you bought the bot- battering ram. It turns out that evidence is being destroyed. So they crash and they enter the inn. And the court says, no, I mean, the police here, they went with the intention of creating the exigency. And so that's not really an emergency because you knew it was going to happen, right? It's not a surprise. Um, you, you had planned for this. You knew it was going to happen. It's not an emergency. And so the court suppresses the evidence. What I would tell you is that that's kind of in conflict with a case called Kentucky versus King, which is a 2011 case from the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, that's a case, it's, a, it's an opinion by Justice Scalia, who, who states it doesn't matter whether the police knew or not there was going to be an exigency. There's no such thing as a police-created exigency under federal law, U.S. Supreme Court law. Um, but remember that Virginia is always free to set a higher standard under the Fourth Amendment than otherwise exists uh, under federal law. And in fact, you know, you know, there's plenty of states, um, you know, I can think of states like New York and California and so on, who view the Fourth Amendment as more restrictive than the federal government does. And so the Fourth Amendment in those places is more restrictive than it is in Virginia as in the eyes of the courts. So I think Faines is still... Um, you know, potentially good law in Virginia, and you do want to be careful. You don't want to go to some place and create your own exigency. If you know there's going to be an exigent circumstance, then it's not really an emergency because you knew it was going to happen. Um, it, it does need to be a surprise. It, you know, an emergency, something that happens that you didn't realize was going to happen, I think, I think is still important. Another question that I get a lot is what about uh, looking at hotel records? Uh, it's certainly, you know, it's a smart move, I think, if you've got wanted people uh, to sometimes check to see. There's, you know, often hotels or motels or, you know, places where a lot of people like to stay to engage in selling drugs or human trafficking or whatever they're engaged in. And so, you know, you can oftentimes look at the guest list of a hotel and see like, oh, I know that guy, he's wanted. Or, oh, I know who that is, that's so-and-so's girlfriend and and her boyfriend is wanted. So I may go look in that hotel room or I may just sit in the parking lot and, and wait for that person to come in uh, because that person, um, you know, it's a, it's a good opportunity to, to, to arrest that person. I haven't been able to find them otherwise. They're probably staying at a hotel because they're not staying at home. It's interesting, in City of Los Angeles versus Patel, this is a U.S. Supreme Court case from 2015 where the City of Los Angeles required the police to inspect hotel registers on demand. And if they didn't allow the police to do that, then they then the hotels were opening themselves up to criminal prosecution. And so in that case, the hotels themselves sued the city of Los Angeles under the Fourth Amendment. And they basically said, look, you can't come and search our records that we possess without a warrant. Uh, and that's a Fourth Amendment violation. So it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's interesting because the U.S. Supreme Court looks at it and they say, you know, we agree. This is certainly a government search, right? Where the government is searching the records of a private company. So that's a search and it's under the Fourth Amendment. So if you're going to compel somebody to turn those records over, uh, if you're going to go in and require someone to turn those records over, then you have to have some kind of legal process. What's interesting, though, is the U.S. Supreme Court does not say that legal process is a search warrant. Uh, what they say is that it has to be some kind of legal process of some kind. But, you know, a hotel is a, is a regulated industry. 
and you know the health inspector comes in they don't necessarily have a search warrant the fire marshal comes in they don't necessarily have a search warrant um you know there's different government entities that come in and do all sorts of inspections and you know uh and those are necessary to protect public safety so you don't need a warrant every time you go into a hotel but the court is saying if you're going to force the hotel to turn your records over you need to have some kind of legal process and uh and and the hotel owner ought to be entitled to some kind of due process some chance for pre-compliance review before some kind of neutral decision maker not necessarily a judge but somebody <clears throat> to hear their objections for our purposes though the part of the case that I think is really important and, and is significant for us to remember, because we don't have a statute like this, and I don't think we're going to get a statute like this. But the Supreme Court says, you know, again, this is a Fourth Amendment question, and therefore consent is a perfectly valid way to obtain records of a hotel. And that's the, the bottom line that I think I want us to take away from City of Los Angeles versus Patel is, it is perfectly appropriate for a hotel to, with consent, let you examine their records. If you want to go in there and say, hey, you know, I'm just you know, concerned about guns and drugs and wanted people and so on. Do you mind if I take a look at your uh, guest list, your registration list? They are absolutely uh, free to, to share that with you. And again, that's oftentimes a useful tactic. So what's the whole point of all this? Uh, I think that a really good summary case to talk about this is uh, Salahuddin versus Commonwealth. And what happens in Salahuddin versus Commonwealth, the defendant's a drug dealer, and he doesn't want his name to end up on the guest list. So he gets his buddy to rent a room for him. Now, his buddy doesn't have anything to do with the drug operation other than he's just sort of the, the face. He's, he's going to be the, the straw name on the paper. So he walks up. He gets the hotel room. Importantly, the hotel gives him the conditions, the terms and conditions of the stay, and he signs it without really reading it. He doesn't care. He signs whatever, takes the hotel key, gives it to the defendant, Mr. Salahuddin, and then disappears. He's gone. So from now on, Mr. Salahuddin is the person who is going to be using this room. And Mr. Salahuddin starts selling drugs from the room. Now, what's important is Mr. Salahuddin's friend signed an agreement, and the agreement was on a little registration card, and it said, uh, you know, he could have overnight guests. So Mr. Salahuddin was welcome to come and stay also. There's nothing wrong with that. So he did have an expectation of privacy in that room because he was an overnight guest, an approved overnight guest, even though the hotel didn't know about him. His name wasn't didn't appear anywhere on the paperwork. But this, the card, the registration card, the agreement that the uh, that his buddy signed also permitted the hotel to enter the room at any time to conduct inspections of the room. And importantly, it also stated that should the occupant violate any laws, the agreement was subject to immediate termination without regard to any landlord-tenant rights. So, now what happens? Well, what happens is the hotel clerk, the hotel manager, starts to notice, you know, there's something, there's something going on in this room. There's something, this guy's up to no good. Um, she can see people are coming and going all the time. People are, you know, just knocking on the door, going inside and leaving without, you know, after a minute, um, way too much traffic. Uh, this guy's got a sign up that says, do not disturb, do not enter. He asks the cleaning crew not to come in for several days. So nobody's been in this room for several days, but there's a lot of people going in and out of the room. She's very suspicious. So she waits until, uh, Mr. Salahuddin goes out for a little while and abandons the room for a few minutes. And she goes inside and she does sort of an impromptu inspection. She finds a ton of drugs and a ton of, a ton of drug paraphernalia. And she calls the police and she says, you need to come down here. So the police show up and she 
leads him to the room. She opens the door and she says, you got to see what's going on in here. And she's like, look at this, look at this. And there's drugs here and there's drugs here. And while the police are there, she's opening up cabinets and she goes, and look, you know, I didn't even find this before, but here's scales and drugs and whatever. Look at all this stuff. So the police are there. Uh, the police photograph what she shows them. They leave and they get a search warrant. Mr. Salahuddin, he objects. He says, you know, again, this is my room. This is my house. And, you know, if I were a, if I had, uh, if I had a, a rental agreement, my landlord couldn't just let the police in. Uh, I, you know, this is my home. He has to give me, he has to protect my, he has to, to, to respect my privacy. But the court says, no, 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 hold on. You're an overnight guest. You have no right to contest the entry that the person who's let out the room, the actual registered guest, has given the consent that they've given, the terms that they've made with the hotel. And here, your buddy signed an agreement that said the hotel could make uninvited, unannounced inspections at any time. And your buddy also signed an agreement that said that immediately, even if they give you no notice, if they discover any violations of law, they can terminate the agreement without notice on site. And so... In this case, of course, as soon as the hotel manager walks in and finds all this drug paraphernalia, drugs and so on, and sees evidence of the, of the violation of law, she is uh, free to terminate the agreement right there and allow police to enter and, and, and take pictures and so on. So, you know, there's two lessons from this case. I think the first lesson from this case to take away is you, it, you, know, you definitely want to understand what the relationship is between the hotel and their... Uh, and their overnight guest, right? What does the agreement say? What did the agreement that they signed say? What are the terms of their uh, agreement with each other? Could the hotel enter without notice and so on? Can the hotel terminate? Um, is this person even still lawfully renting the room or have they overstayed? Uh, have they, you know, has their credit card, you know, declined? Has their credit card been declined? Um, are they even supposed to be in this room anymore, right? Because if they don't have any right to the room, then they have no expectation of privacy. Um, has the hotel terminated them? That kind of stuff. So that's um, an important question to ask when you're getting in there. What's the lawful status? Or, you know, is the person still a lawful overnight guest? Do they have a right to that room? Are they still paying for it? Uh, and therefore, is this essentially their home? And then, you know, if they are, it's their home, then the only three ways into that home are going to be a search warrant or consent or exigent circumstances. And we, I think we've talked a lot about exigent circumstances, and certainly we have other podcasts on exigent circumstances as well. So, uh, Daniel, I hope that uh, gave you some insight into the question that you asked. I think you asked a really great question. You gave a great idea for a podcast. And I hope that we met your expectations, gave you what you wanted. If you have other ideas for podcasts, uh, feel free to share them with me. And I'm you know, always trying to make this useful for you. I always try to keep these to, you know, short, maybe 30 minutes, uh, but make them useful for you uh, in the future. Uh, I said at the beginning that, you know, I don't, I can't do, I can't do a podcast uh, at the beginning of January without talking about what happened last week at the U.S. Capitol. And, you know, we can spend, we could spend the next 10 years talking about how it came to this. Uh, but, I don't think we should beat around the bush about it or mince words. What we saw last week was we saw terrorists storm our capital and attempt an insurrection. They killed a police officer. They injured many other police officers. And I've watched videos of officers being crushed in crowds, uh, just trying to defend our country. 
officers who were simply overrun, whose positions got overrun, um, and 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 had to you know flee. I mean, you know, it's it's terrifying. You can you identify, you can see that identifying that position. You're looking at a crowd of you know dozens of people, and you're just one person uh, running to just concern: Am I going to make it? Am I going to live through the next few minutes? Um, there's a video, you know, we've all probably seen the video of an officer who shoots a civilian who is smashing her way through a barricade. Um, she and this crowd they're you know, they're wearing body armor. Uh, they're you know, facing officers who've, who are pointing guns at them, who are demanding that they just not smash their way in, um, officers who are trying to protect the elected officials of our country. Um, and she's shot and killed. What I would say is, you know, a lot of people see all this and they kind of lose hope. Um, they look at it as a failure of democracy. You know, you look at countries that will go unnamed and they're sort of laughing at us. I mean, you're sort of saying, hey, look, this shows that, you know, America is weak. America, uh, our, its democracy is weak. Its former government is weak. You know, I, I woke up the day afterwards and to me, I, I didn't see weakness. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, looking at those police officers, watching those videos, watching the officers' reactions, I saw the best of our country. I saw a few men and women who had woken up that morning, put on a uniform, put a badge on, and went to their job. Uh, I'm sure they weren't paid very much. They were probably often, and I know, you know, often insulted and derided by the very people whom they had sworn to protect. But they served their country. They did their duty as best as they could, even if it meant never coming home again at the end of the day to hang up their gear and to see their families one more time. And I just hope that you have the chance to honor, honor those officers who served that day sometime soon. Maybe it's police week, uh, or maybe it's just somehow privately. But for all of you who are law enforcement officers out there who are listening to this podcast, remember that no matter who you are, no matter your politics, at the end, you are our police, and that means something. You are the line between democracy and chaos, between freedom and tyranny. And even if you get no thanks at all, even if the people who you protect uh, insult you and deride you, remember that you know one true reward for what you do, and there's not that many, is that your family, your fellow citizens, your fellow countrymen, they can live in a free country that is by the people and for the people. And so this, I just say, I cannot say enough. I thank you, all of you, for your service. That's all from me. Uh, that's all from Big E for today. Stay safe and don't get captured.